Hello, and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by attorney Georgiana Junko Kelman. And this is our second interview with Georgiana. She spoke uh, at the beginning of this pandemic on distance learning and gave us some really great uh, information and advice of how to approach our IEPs and the supports and services for our children. And now heading into the new school year, she's back with us. And I want to encourage you to grab a cup of tea or coffee and find a place. This is a one of our longer episodes, but this is for all parents with children with IEPs. Have a pen and paper so you can write down some of the information and some of the words and the verbiage, and it's, it's really invaluable. Uh, and this was such a gift. Georgiana sat down with us and gave us an hour and a half of her time, and We're honored to be able to gift that to you, and we hope that this brings a lot of comfort, knowledge, and assistance to parents out there who are now trying to navigate a new school system in this new normal with IEPs and supports and placements and so many concerns and pressures that just exist for all of us in this pandemic and anytime. So sit back. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Hello, Georgiana. Thank you for joining us again on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, I know I'm getting a lot of questions about assessments and, you know, the shifty, either the LAUSD is saying they don't do assessments or parents are concerned about the quality of assessments. And what if they get, you know, like a one parent yesterday was telling me for a psych assessment that they're just using the survey you fill out because they can't observe. So I think assessments are a real big concern. And even uh, placement, you know, getting shifted into some Zoom placement, distance learning placement, that when this goes away, now you've been put in a special day class or someplace that you really didn't want for your kid. And so I think I think it's just a lot of concern that things are getting done kind of shifty. Sure, yes, absolutely. And uh, now we're going back into a new school year. What should parents expect? And what are you seeing as far as uh, classes resuming and IEPs and placement? Primarily what parents need to understand, I think, most of all moving forward is that they still have the protection of federal law. And that's very clear. You know, there were guidelines that were offered back in April by the Department of Education under the instruction of, you know, the California Department of Education, under the United States Department of Education and the Office of Special Education. It is clear that there is a mandate that federal law, IDEA, still be implemented and the, the language being used is to the extent feasible or to the maximum extent possible. That's obviously going to be a question. What does that mean? You know, but um, what we know for sure is that the law continues. All guidelines um, clearly indicate that IDA is not suspended. IEP implementation continues, specifically timelines, for example, for assessments. Those continue as well. And it's in the guidelines. 
some districts have, um, and let me back up for one second. So according to the guidelines, districts don't have to convene IEP meetings to address the IEP for purposes of the COVID-19 changes because we can't control the pandemic. We can't not make these changes. That's inevitable. So the IEP is to continue, however, under alternative ways, but the IEP services all still have to be applied. And so while the guidelines say districts don't have to convene IEP meetings to address that, it is absolutely incorrect for districts to assume they don't have to convene IEP meetings when parents ask for them, which has been happening. Some parents have asked for meetings because they've been concerned that the program in place isn't working or the services aren't being delivered or, you know, their child just is failing under the distance learning model and they need to address changing how the delivery of service is being done. And so they've asked for IEP meetings to address and some districts have outright told parents, we don't have to convene IEP meetings during this time. That is a complete fallacy. Absolutely. If a parent asks for an IEP meeting and I'm saying that they should moving forward, that the district has to comply with federal law, IDEA, the um, California Education Code, which mandates that once a parent requests an IEP meeting, it must be granted within 30 days of that request, as long as it's during the school year. So anytime there's more than a five-day break on a vacation, like during the summer, no, they don't have to convene IEP meetings then. But for example, October, I mean, August 18 is the first day of the LAUSD school year. And come August 18, parent can't request an IEP meeting to address whatever concern a parent has. They don't have to legitimize or excuse what concerns they are in order to have the meeting granted. They can ask for the meeting. And at that meeting, you can address all of the concerns that you have um, moving forward. And it may be that some kids do require the IEP to be altered to reflect the changing times. It may be that the amount of time that's being provided for services isn't working for the student. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of regression. So there's a lot to be considering moving forward with the new school year. I don't know what to expect as of now. Specifically with the LAUSD, we've not heard anything from anyone in terms of delivery of service for special education specifically. None of my clients have been reached out to any particular administrator or teacher or you know case carrier for their child's uh, IEP. This I'm hoping that there will be communication. The key to all of this moving forward will be collaboration and communication. That will be critical between schools and parents. And parents are going to have to, I told you guys this the last time, they're going to have to take an even more active role in pushing for services. And we are still waiting to see what the result is from the UTLA, LAUSD agreement in terms of how many hours per day. We have some idea, but we're not certain yet. They've not ratified the agreement yet, so we're not certain. My understanding is there will be six hours of instruction, but there's interpretation to what that means as well, depending on the grade of the student. Some students will have an hour of instruction. Some are gonna, some will have up to three maximum. That's what I'm hearing. And that may not work. You know, students' IEPs call for six hours of instruction, and students' IEPs call for specific delivery of services a certain time, a certain number of times per week. Students that have one-to-one behavior intervention support, the IEP calls for six hours of that. And so how is that going to be applied moving forward? These are still the needs that the student has. And just because there's a pandemic and there's going to be obviously a forced change in the delivery of service doesn't mean that there should be some commensurate service to the actual IEP when traditional school is in session. 
um, to the extent possible, there should be absolutely commensurate services. And just because, not, I'm not saying just because it's a big deal, we have a major pandemic going on, but that is not an excuse. It is not a pass for districts to take a seat, a back seat and relax their responsibilities. They very much still have to apply all of these uh, mandates that students have as per their IEPs. Okay, so what I want to clarify in here is that First of all, as we go into the school year, if you haven't been reached out to by your administration or for supports, you reach. Absolutely. I would advise parents, you know, all districts start around the same time. Some, I don't think any have started yet in California. I'm not certain. But I know that Southern California, all districts more or less start around the 18th, 19th, 20th. So I would absolutely take this coming week to reach out to your school administrator or case carrier, typically from kindergarten or transition kindergarten through eighth grade, the person in charge of special education in LAUSD schools are assistant principals. In high school, you typically have a case, a, a special education sort of director. Sometimes it's still the assistant principal. It's different in high school, but you should reach out to your special education services office uh, for kids in high school and request that you speak with someone. The tricky part is because of the pandemic, there may still not be staff at schools. I know that some have returned. So the best really way to communicate right now is via email. So I would start sending emails requesting a response to their students' opportunity as to what to expect with your child's programming come the 18th of August when school starts. Um, My understanding is they're doing what's called a smart start, which means I think that first and second day of school are going to be mostly Zoom sort of social emotional support meetings and actual instruction won't start until I think midweek after school starts. So, you know, again, these are all sort of speculations, things I'm hearing, and but parents need to be provided a very clear map by their school administrators and case carriers for the child's IEP specifically instructing them what to expect and what their child's school day will look like. It's going to be different than last time because I believe there's more there. I believe there will be more consistency, more specialized, you know, structured instruction where there will be a particular schedule. Teachers are not going to have the option not to teach this time around directly via technology virtually, whereas, you know, last time and it was a miserable failure. The teachers were given the option not to instruct and to instead provide independent work and then kind of check in with their students. That's not going to happen this time. It's my understanding there is a mandate where there is going to be a mandated number of hours per day of instruction every single day, except I think either Fridays or Monday. They're they're, they're advocating for a four-day week, which I think is ludicrous. I don't really see why, but nonetheless, that's a whole other conversation. Um, But I believe that moving forward, we're going to see more structure where there will be specific instruction, uh, number of hours per day. So kids will have more of a routine to follow every single day. But that's going to look different for every kid because some kids with an IEP are in regular education classes. Other kids are in specialized day classes. Some kids require, you know, speech and language, OT, all the related services. So parents that have kids in general education, regular education, but who also have related services have to communicate with the related service providers. They have to collaborate um, and coordinate with the general ed teacher 
and the resource teacher where the student receives the specialized academic instruction. There's a lot of coordinating that has to happen to determine when the child will receive these additional services. And so that's going to come down to if you haven't heard from your school, parents have to continually actively take the step toward contacting them so they can get a clear picture of what the programming will look like, which, like I said, I'm anticipating it's going to be a lot more um, specific, which is good, but to the extent that it's going to, to work, I, I don't have a lot of faith in that this is going to be anything even comparable to what a student should access if they were in actual school. But they need to absolutely put forth their best efforts, and I've not seen that yet. So for IEPs, that's a that's a big deal. I heard you you were talking about setting an IEP because now that we're in this pandemic, we're seeing that our children have different needs. They have they need different supports because of, you know, they're not in the classroom. And I just want to reiterate to parents that you're you're saying ask for that IEP for those additional services and supports and that they have to give you an IEP because I think I think a lot of what's happening, which is what happens to us parents in a normal situation, is we get told false information that we wouldn't expect to be false information that we just believe, and we kind of get the brush off. And so I just want parents to understand that they do have the right to request that to get the new services that they need. And I know that also when it comes to IEPs, I'm hearing concerns about the integrity of the IEP or the assessment. And also with the yearly IEPs, obviously a lot of timelines were brushed under the <laughs> under the carpet because of the pandemic and a lot of IEPs did not happen. We didn't have an IEP season at the end of last year. So can you talk a little bit on that? Because there are concerns even to the integrity of the IEP or the assessments and the ramifications that will happen because of this new situation. Right. So in my opinion, you know, no matter what the districts are doing or not doing, I think almost every child with an IEP will be entitled to compensatory education. There's a bit of a, a misconception, and I want parents to really understand this, that the district has a responsibility to provide a free, appropriate public education. That is all delineated in the IEP as to what that appropriate education is, and those services have to be provided in order to facilitate that fate, that free, appropriate public education. And so the law isn't about the student not received services placement appropriately because of the pandemic and therefore it's not the fault of the district. That's not the standard and therefore the district's off the hook and doesn't have to provide compensatory education for, for you know the inability to provide services outside of its control, let's say. The fact remains the student was not provided a FAPE. The student did not receive what the student required and regardless of how that happened, the student is still going to be owed compensatory education. So, you know, in some cases, I'm hearing attorneys are advising districts, look, provide something. At least we can say that you provided a level of support, but you did the best you could. And because you did the best you could, that was enough. That's not true. Every case has to be specifically analyzed individually. And in the guidelines per the CDE, it is clear that it is to be determined whether on a case-by-case -case basis, because it's an individualized education program, it's going to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis whether a student has regressed and whether a student is owed compensatory education. There is no blanket rule that we did what we could within the circumstances we had. We couldn't have done more. Therefore, we owe you nothing. Absolutely not. 
parents need to keep tabs, very clear tabs, a very clear record track what they did and what they didn't do and, and moving forward, what they will do and, and what they will not do. Um, districts have a responsibility, I can't stress this enough, to provide the services in the IEP. And so if your child requires, let's say, two, you know, an hour weekly of speech and language support, 30 minutes twice a week, direct service, meaning with a service provider one-on-one, that needs to be provided. If the district tells you that they're short on staff or that, you know, for whatever reason, it can't be provided or that they're going to provide what they can, that's not enough. The IEP calls for an hour a week. Your student should be receiving an hour a week. And if your student is not receiving an hour a week, your student will be owed compensatory education. So it's important to keep a very, very clear record of what's being done and what's not um, being done because a FAPE is still expected. In terms of assessment, it's the same thing. Um, the guidelines from the CDE, they're a little disturbing to me because the way that they're written, they are saying for now, the department, the, the U.S. Department of Education is not making any changes to the current federal uh, law mandates, which presumes that they could at some point. I would argue that they can't. No one can change legislation except for Congress. And IDEA cannot be relaxed unilaterally by any governmental body, regardless of what's going on. And so we may get to a point where they may give districts a little more leeway and say, okay, we're going to relax the timelines or, you know, the the timeline for assessments or for IEPs or what have you. And we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But right now, the guidelines, as they should be, which is to ensure the implementation of IDEA continues is that districts are to continue with the delivery of services as the IEP uh, mandates, and they are to conduct assessments. So a student that has a triennial assessment coming up or a parent that suspects there's an additional concern with the student and an area needs to be assessed to determine whether or not the student needs more services, those assessments should continue. The parent should request the timeline of requiring a a 15-day response from the district for the parent to sign in consent still applies. And so does the 60-day timeline to complete assessments, convene an IEP meeting, and make recommendations if the student qualifies for another service. All of those timelines still apply, and districts need to find ways to alternatively assess students. Some have figured it out. I can tell you that, for example, the proof is in the pudding and that IEE assessors, um, independent assessors, are conducting their assessments. They've found ways to be creative, and they've done it online. They are able to administer the testing online with the student, the one-on-one standardized testing with students. The only real thing, and and the the psychological services departments are finding ways to assess individuals and students um, where there is effective data that's being collected and that recommendation can be made at the end of the assessment. I've, I've seen several of those now, and there's no question that it's absolutely possible. The only thing that can happen, obviously, is observation at school so they can't observe the student but i would argue that given this time not being able to do one last component of the assessment which isn't really going to negate the rest of the findings i believe that the rest of the findings will be enough to provide student support moving forward instead of sitting around and saying well we can't assess because we can't observe the student that's not the pass that they're getting they need to exercise reasonable efforts to assess the student and many have, and the proof is there that it can be done via telehealth. They just have to be, to be trained on how to be able to conduct those assessments. If they haven't been, districts have that responsibility because child find 
which is the law that applies to identifying children with special needs in schools, doesn't get told. That law isn't stopped or suspended while this is going on. So absolutely, IEP meetings need to be held. Parents need to make very clear what they're missing and what they may need and make a clear record of what's not being provided because the time will come when you can file a due process complaint, if not right away, and request that additional supports be provided or compensatory relief be provided because the child wasn't provided all that your child required, whether it's placements and services, and the same with assessments. If they're, you know, I have a number of my clients and I'm fighting back for them that are being told, oh, we're not going to assess until we go back to school. Absolutely not. And, you know, sadly, I had a situation a few weeks ago where the client was told outright we're not going to assess. This is a student in private school struggling significantly, diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. The private school can no longer meet his needs. Told the parents, you need to assess him formally via the district, and we recommend that he likely be enrolled in public school because we can't meet the needs that public school can for kids with disabilities. So sure enough, the parent went to the local private, their local public homeschool and said, my child needs assessments. I need to determine eligibility. We likely will enroll him in your school. They were outright told, sorry, we are not doing any assessments now. Come back when pandemic is gone, basically. And that is 100% illegal. I, of course, got on the case, called them. There's now a you know, change in their tune. So they're going to find ways to assess. You know, unfortunately, sometimes, unless you have a strong arm pushing to get what you need, they, they just bully parents or they, they roll right over parents. Um, parents have to insist and educate themselves and empower themselves with the information that they need to show that the districts are wrong. If you go to the Department of Education, California Department of Education website, and you look under the COVID-19 guidelines for special education, it is all laid out. So you print that out and you send it to the administrator and say, right here in black and white, it states that you must continue to implement IDEA. Timelines are not suspended. Child find is not suspended. My child still needs to be assessed because his disability is not going to be paused pending the pandemic being over and this time is crucial time that a child can't just lose it is tricky it is difficult and sometimes they just won't hear you sometimes you can scream to the four winds and they still will ignore you all you can do then is track everything so you can later file a due process complaint and pursue your your rifle um, retribution and the parents that are able to you can fund outside support and we can also, um, the parent can also later pursue out-of-pocket costs to supplement that which the district refused to provide. You know, let me give you a quick example for the parents that need assessments done and they're not doing them. Specifically, the ones that have to be identified newly to determine eligibility for an IEP. If the district says no, make note of that. You know, I've requested an assessment and you've told me on such and such date that you're not going to because of the pandemic. So that forced me to go out and get a private assessment. I paid X amount. So now you you go, you get your assessment, you get your findings, you call an IEP meeting if your child already has an IEP, or you ask whether they'll convene an IEP to consider the outside assessment of a private assessor to determine eligibility since they wouldn't assess. They will likely tell you no. Then you can proceed to due process later to pursue out-of-pocket costs for that assessment that you had to conduct and whatever services parents had to fund because they just refused to do so. And just remembering that being told, you know, I've been told a ton of times by district councils, we're in a pandemic for Christ's sake. Yes, we are. But again, that is not a pass for not exercising the absolute due diligence and best efforts implemented as is being required of districts. And it's not happening in a lot of places. 
and parents just have to become savvy as to how to, you know, take advantage of that information and make sure you record it all because the time will come where you can go and pursue those compensatory relief um, uh, methods. You know, I think the the most frustrating thing is the bullying because we get it as parents, we get it in, in a regular situation without a pandemic. And I think that's what's most frustrating because these parents who have to fight a bigger fight on a daily basis are also in a pandemic, but now they're having to, I mean, you hear all on all the pages where parents are, you know, of typical children are complaining, we're not getting our support, we're not getting this, and their voices are being heard. And I feel like there's lots of efforts being made to make them comfortable so that they can have the supports that their children need. But it's the parents of the children with IEPs that now the fight that we had before it's even worse. And it's so frustrating because there's an array of different supports that people are getting depending on how hard they push, which I'd like to talk about that too. But also also with the assessments, what do parents do to assure that the assessment that they do get is good? Because just because they're given an assessment, I hear concern that these aren't good assessments. And what do they do then if they don't feel that that assessment that they're being given is appropriate and that reasonable efforts have been taken? Right. Well, the mechanism is the same in terms of the parents' rights. If they disagree with the district assessment under you know regular traditional school year, when the district assesses and the parent disagrees with that assessment, they have the right to request an independent assessment publicly funded, which means the district has to pay for it. It's the same standard where you let the district know you conducted these assessments. I don't think they're they're complete. And, you know, parents don't ever have to even give a reason why they don't agree with the assessments. All they have to do is put in writing, I disagree with the assessments and its findings. And I don't believe its recommendations are commensurate with my child's needs. Therefore, I am requesting that the district fund an independent educational evaluation. That IEE can either be funded by the district where they can agree to say, fine, we'll go ahead and fund it. And then we can mutually agree upon a, an independent assessor. The parent has the right to choose the, the assessor as long as they meet the same standards and qualifications that the district requires. Or the district can say, we disagree with you. We stand by our assessments. We think they're appropriate. And then the district then has to take the affirmative step. The onus is now on them to file a due process complaint and prove to a judge that their assessments of your child that you disagree with are indeed sufficient. And so it's the same process now. They conduct an assessment, they say virtually, and you feel that the assessment just is, isn't complete or um, it just it's not in-depth enough. Request an IE, and it's the same process that has to happen, the same laws and safeguards apply to the parent and um, districts sometimes will tell you no we disagree and then they sit on that they don't do anything they don't file the complaint and they don't fund your assessment um, you as a parent can go and then fund your own assessment the, there is no idea IDA doesn't have any kind of statutory guidance as to how long a district has to file a due process complaint? What is the reasonable amount of time they have to file before it's been too long and the parent can then go fund their own assessment and then they can pursue reimbursement because the district didn't do what they were supposed to do. In California, there is some case law that indicates that if the district takes three months to file a due process complaint, that's too long. So that's sort of the standard that I go by um, is the district didn't uh, want to fund my assessment and they didn't file a due process complaint. 
usually for a valid case, it's about a three-month period of time. What is unreasonable um, delay? And so sometimes, you know, three months is a long time for a parent to sit and wait for an answer while their child is struggling. So sometimes I just file a due process complaint, you know, disagreeing with the district assessments and asking that an independent assessment be granted. And oftentimes in mediation and, and, you know, settlement agreements, we tend to agree on that because it's cheaper to just agree on doing that than it is to go to a full-blown hearing where the district now has to pay for attorney fees and, you know, the time, the resources, it's going to end up costing them, you know, 10 times more to fight it than it is to just fund the assessment. So sometimes it comes down to that strategic decision, but you may have to file a due process complaint to pursue that independent assessment if the district does nothing. And if you do go pursue your own private assessment, because the district sits on on them responding to funding or not filing a due process complaint, you can you can go ahead and um, fund your own assessment. And once that assessment is complete, you can go back to the district and say, look, I have a private assessment that I had conducted that I would like you to consider. And by law, they have to convene an IEP meeting. They have to review those findings. They don't have to follow them, but they do have to review the findings and give you your written notice as to why they don't agree with the recommendations of the assessment. Um, so that's the long, you know, the, the long of, uh, of it. You want the districts to obviously make give you an answer pretty quickly so you know which way to go. Usually I would wait a little bit of time before I file my complaint because they do need to have a period of time where they can either file or, or fund your assessment. But it's going to depend on the particular case and what the district is telling you. I wouldn't just sit around and wait because, you know, time is of the essence. It's difficult because a lot of families can't afford to go hire a private assessor. And, you know, those are costly between five and $7,000. Sometimes if you go to your insurance company, your insurance will fund it. In terms of the rights to request IEEs, the right to disagree with their assessments, the same exact laws apply. And the districts have to comply. So in that sense, not much has changed in that order of things because, you know, the same grievances that we see during traditional school year, we're going to continue to see during COVID, even more so. So parents just have to brace themselves and kind of follow that same diligent path of really conserving their evidence and pursuing litigation later. That's probably, you know, going to have to be the ultimate outcome if they're getting no responses from the district. You know, I think it can be frustrating to the parent, too, because, you know, as we've discussed, this is a pandemic and all of this is happening during the pandemic. Can I can we talk a little bit about the um, district's responsibility if because I think cost is a big deterrent that at, at some point uh, parents get just exhausted and then I think the cost is the roadblock where they just finally say I can't spend $7,000 on this assessment and then then it becomes this downward spiral into a hole of following an assessment they don't believe and, you know, now their child's placement or can we talk a little bit about that or about any kind of, I don't know, financial relief or? The due process mechanism doesn't permit for the recovery of any other costs other than educationally related costs. And parents, obviously, when the districts are not providing what the child needs, the options the parent has is to go through the appeals process in the hopes of arriving at a place where they will be able to procure what the student needs via 
yeah, a mediation mechanism where there's a there's you know a settlement discussion and and both parties talk about you know what each side wants and hopefully resolving someplace in the middle where the student will hopefully walk away with meaningful services and support. The other option is for parents to go fund all of that and then pursue due process and and pursue out of pocket costs. But in terms of you know having an outlet or you know some form of accessing funds none of that is really possible you know the system is in place in order for parents to pursue that which they don't agree with and that is as you know can be a an onerous and daunting mechanism you have to go through the motions and that takes some time when your child is regressing daily it is very difficult because while that mechanism of appeals is in place it's not a super fast one although it's a pretty quick one in relation to you know civil and, and legal proceedings in general it's a pretty quick timeline you know worst case scenario you file a due process complaint you're not going to be in mediation for at least 30 days um, you can opt for the resolution session which is 15 days of, from filing your complaint but the 45 day timeline by which to complete a hearing doesn't kick in if you opt for those 15 days because those 15 days then turns into 30 days the resolution session after you file your complaint the districts have 30 days in essence to try and resolve with you if you don't resolve in that period of time then you ask for your mediation timeline but the 45 day starts 30 days later and then there's continuances and you know both parties may have conflicts in their schedules and and so by the time you get an actual resolution it may have been two three months that have gone by before you get somewhere where you know the meat of things to really get something that's going to help your kid and so that's really the best sort of outlet for support to to pursue Support is the due process mechanism, um, although it's why I'm advising families, if you can call an IEP meeting, you absolutely can, and have a conversation, try and collaborate, you know, talk to the administrators, the teachers, look, this isn't working, this program that, that you've offered isn't working, I need more for my kid, what that more is, I don't know, we need to collaborate as to how we can meaningfully support my child so he can gain access to some sort of a meaningful education. Hopefully that conversation can be had. But as you guys know, sometimes that is just hitting a brick wall. But it is worth calling the IEP right away and addressing the needs and the issues right away and seeing what they can do. Um, I want to segue a little bit on that note because when you read the guidelines that the CDE provided, it's clear that it is um, carved in there. It is, it is clearly implied that distance learning is not going to work for every kid, which is why they have allowed for exceptions as to in-home services support. It's, it's on there in black and white. They have made exceptions um, for, you know, the certain service providers are deemed essential um, health workers, um, like uh, special education service providers, like special, like speech and language, OT, um, behavioral support specifically. The guidelines say that if a child is in need of maintaining mental, physical health and safety in order to access the child's distance learning, that districts not in violation of the stay-at-home order can allow these service providers to come to the home. There is absolute authority for it. It's not been granted one time. Specifically, the LAUSD, other districts I've dealt with have said no. When I've 
try to, you know, obtain from them, why not? You have the authority. And, you know, they say to, we're not going to expose our teachers and service providers to COVID. That's fine. But if a teacher and a service provider or a non-public agency that you contract with is willing to do it, there is nothing stopping you from allowing them to do it. They are deemed essential health workers. And it's right there in the guidelines in black and white. And so there is no reason not to grant it in terms of liability or exposure, any of that. They then turn to, well, the student needs to meet the exception. We don't think, you know, I had a particular student. We don't think your student meets the exception um, for the, you know, it's the essential critical infrastructure workers that can come to the home to meet these exceptions when children need the health and safety component and the mental health component met in order to learn online, meaning they need someone um, at home next to them, working with them to understand what's being instructed to them via virtual learning um, on the other side of the computer. Their parents aren't able to keep them attending. They don't have the strategies or the methodologies in place to know how to have their student focus and attend given whatever the disability the student has. And so for those reasons, this exception has been carved out. Unfortunately, no one is granting it, granting it. And I think that, you know, I personally have filed a number of due process complaints. I'm about to file a few more to pursue these services at home because not every kid can distance learn. And it is right there in black and white in the guidelines. And parents just have to, like I said, you know, arm yourselves with that knowledge and point that out to them and get the particular reason why they are not providing the service at home. Just about every service for a special education child can be provided at home if that child meets those exceptions. Um, and I, I would argue many will, the mental health um, and physical and health and safety exception that has been provided. Many kids will meet that exception. And a lot of kids have the one-to-ones already at school. And so the district isn't really, you know, expending any more monies, you're going to spend the money anyway, because these aids should be online with your student during distance learning. But when you have an aid online, it's almost, it's futile because it, it's not effective. The, the ability that they have to support a student physically isn't the same as when they're on the other side of the computer and there's a classroom going on and the student and the aid can't confer because it's going to be a distraction. How are the aid and the student going to be conferring during the instruction time? It's, it's impossible. And the student tunes out or for whatever issues the student has, the student's unable to attend. But if the aide was at home physically with them, that would be a very different story. And so there's definitely a very valid argument there that they should be permitted. Um, but it's going to have to be filing due process complaints. And if districts still refuse it, it's going to mean going to a hearing and letting a judge decide if the Department of Education doesn't clarify the guidelines more specifically as to when it is that districts can go ahead and um, provide the in-home in services support. Right now, I've had other attorneys say to me that they interpret the exception to mean those services can be provided at home only for kids that are suicidal, which to me is ludicrous because it says nowhere near it does it say any of the such. And so the way that the language is written, it's being kind of left, you know, what does mental, physical health and safety needs mean? So to what degree does the student need to be 
impacted his mental health or physical health or health and safety to what extent that then the service can be provided. Um, that hasn't been, it's, you know, it's, it's, it needs to be a little more nuanced and it's not. And so legal counsels for each side are interpreting it as they see it fit. I read it as black and white. Absolutely. This can be, a, a it can be. And so far they're just refusing it. And it can be that there is no kid out there that doesn't meet the qualification. Um, they're saying it's an absolute, very uh, distinct exception, and it's almost applicable to nobody, which is uh, absolutely ludicrous. Because, again, I would urge parents to read the guidelines and start there because these services can be requested, should be requested, and they should be provided. And uh, in the notes, Stephen will provide a link to where they can get those guidelines so they can read those. And and here's the thing on when you talk about parents can't support that they need the BII. Obviously, that's a situation when you have a BII in the classroom. I think there's a lot of parents that like they like they do is when this happened, they took over those services because you can't just leave your child just because they're doing the service that doesn't release the district from their responsibility, though? Absolutely not. And your child's IEP calls for a BII six hours a day. That is still expected to be provided. And there is room for interpretation, whether it should be provided at home or virtually, depending on the need of the student. It absolutely needs to be provided virtually um, during whatever instruction time and whatever service provider time is being allotted in trying to you know, measure the IEP with virtual time, it's, you know, it's not going to be exact, obviously. There's not going to be a six-hour of, of day instruction. That's that's not going to happen, um, whether we want it to happen or not. Some kids just can't sit looking at a screen for six hours a day. That's It's impossible. Um, never mind the kids that don't have that additional support that they need at school to be able to access um, so we, we know off the get-go that there's not going to be a tit-for-tat. We're not going to be able to mirror the IEP virtually. That's not going to happen. Um, but that doesn't mean that the districts can't employ um, additional services and support to at least try and, and maximize the student's gain during this time. And many students will require those services to be provided at home because they can't access it virtually. And districts absolutely have that responsibility. None of those responsibilities are suspended at all for any reason. And again, if they didn't receive those, now we're talking just about the BII, if they didn't receive those when they go back in, those are services that can be made up or should be made up at a later day. Right. It's going to be, especially with BIIs, it will be tricky because, you know, the BII is there throughout the day for various reasons to help the student access and so in terms of compensatory education, when a student returns to school, presumably the BII will be right back with the student for the six hours a day. So where do you make up? You know what I mean? That behavior intervention that wasn't provided. So the argument there is, had you provided the behavior intervention at that time, the student would have had you know, a, a higher opportunity to access what was being taught to the student. And so it's not per se the behavior intervention services that you want to ask for, but it's more the loss of educational um, instruction and gain as a result of their failure to provide a service that could have led to them it could have led to the increase of their meaningfully obtaining an education and therefore to an educational loss and so we would talk about educational therapy or you know some sort of non-public agency academic 
um, program outside of school to make up, in essence, for lost time. So it wouldn't per se be the behavior intervention, um, because like I said, th that intervention is there to access the education. And so if you don't have that support, you're not accessing it. So it's what did the student lose as a result, as a result of the failure of that service, educational, valuable time, and therefore loss of education. So how can we try and make that up? Next to impossible. But we can do that by seeking some sort of educational private support, whether it's, like I said, a therapist, you know, a Linda Mubel program, an Orton-Gillingham program, um, you know, one of the specialized non-public agencies that provide academic support, you know, X amount of hours that the parents would be able to access outside of school. Yeah, because when it comes to a BII uh, an aid, you're not looking for compensatory hours. Those hours are gone. They're just gone. Right. Those hours are gone. But the argument is because those hours were not provided, it led to educational loss because the student didn't have the support that they needed to, to access what the instruction was. And so we look for other ways to make up for that lost time. And the behavior hours aren't going to do it. Um, those will be back the second the student returns to school. As per the IEP, the student continues to have the BII for all of the day. That will continue. So, you know, it's not like you can add on an additional 200 hours of, of behavior intervention. When are you going to be administering those hours? You know what I mean? That it doesn't work. So you have to look to some alternative way to try and come up for um, compensation for that loss. Which would be an academic and some sort of academic compensation. Great. I just wanted parents to understand that there is a way that they can still be made up what was lost and because you know what's going to happen is they're going to some parents are going to sit in an IEP and they're going to be told well the time is gone there's nothing we can give you more BII hours and that's going to happen right and the answer is going to have to be that's not what I'm looking for you can't make up for the lost time by giving my child compensatory education via you know whether it could be in the in the in by means of for example if it's not a private outside program a child in regular education could be provided additional you know resource hours. The academic instruction time with the teacher one-on-one -on -one can be increased, for example. That's one way to do it as well. Uh, but that's tricky always at school because the student has so many other things going on throughout the day that it's always hard to do compensatory education during the school day because the student typically already has so much going on that it's going to be hard to then tack on another 20 hours of speed, another 20 hours of, you know what I mean? So it's going to have to be on a case-by-case -case basis and depending on the student and um, what was lost and what wasn't provided and what, how to best regain whatever that was lost to the extent that it can be. Now, Georgiana, are you seeing more eagerness uh, to provide the services and the supports are needing and that teams are working with the parents when you're going into IEP or for supports? Because I don't want to just focus on the challenges and the roadblocks that are put out there because there are some good guys out there that really do want to support. Are you seeing any of that? Um. Minimally, to be honest with you. Again, I'm, I'm just a small sampling of what may be going on in general. I can only speak to my experience and my clients and what I have seen. Um, and what I saw was discouraging. I'm hopeful that moving forward, we will see a higher accountability. Because again, my understanding is there's a higher expectation of teachers. There's a higher expectation of robust um, distance learning programs that are not going to be fluid or optional like the last three months were. Um, teachers were told they didn't have to work if they didn't want to work, in essence. Basically, it was you can teach or not teach. You can provide independent packages or not provide them. You can do what you'd like. Um, and that hurt students. My students, what I saw was 
I, I had clients that to this day haven't heard from their teachers or service providers who got absolutely nothing. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that. And I had students where we'd have IEP meetings and the teachers would admit, you know, one phrase I got used to hearing was they did not provide the direct instruction. And I would ask, why not? Well, because it was requested, not mandatory. So then how would you administer your, your instruction to the students? Well, I would send independent packages to the parents and have the students work on them all week long. Well, that doesn't work. Parents can't be their teachers. And so I saw a lot of that, a lot of no contact, no routine, no cohesion, um, no expectation, no accountability. And I did see great efforts also. I can't say that I didn't see teachers go out of, go out of their way. I, I actually tended to see the special ed teachers make a higher effort, meaning the special day classes where you've got all special ed kids and, and you know, and, uh, the more restrictive settings, whether mild, moderate, or moderate, severe classes, I actually saw that there was a higher effort made to support those students with IEPs um, in those types of settings. And there was more one-on-one -on -one instruction and more teacher-student interaction online, um, more than the regular education classes where um, you've got students in there who have IEPs who are regular ed students but have dyslexia or ADHD and they have a number of resource minutes per week. Um, I didn't see a lot of the delivery of those services at all. And uh, the resource teachers would tend to just send a package home and the student was lost during the Zoom instruction, limited Zoom instruction that there was because the student um, typically would work with the resource teacher for in, in order to, you know, sometimes what happens is there's a lot of reteaching that's done with the resource support. Um, so the student might be a little lost in the classroom in the general ed curriculum, and then he's able to, that's able to be chunked down and, and worked through with a resource teacher. And so it's, it's, it's that support for regular ed students, and that wasn't provided. And so a lot of, of regular ed students with resource support fell through the cracks because they just didn't get the same specialized academic instruction minutes that they would get in the school year. Um, I saw a lot of service providers not make any attempt at all to reach out to the families. I speak some language or OT. They were just told, the families were just told, here's, again, you know, packages for speech and language would be sent home for the parents to work on with the student independently. I saw a lot of that. And again, when I would ask, why didn't you provide? Well, it's different. It's a pandemic. I was told I didn't have to do it that way, which I think is ludicrous because I do expect service providers, professional service providers, to execute on their duties. And so if your job during the regular school week is to provide, let's say Johnny on Tuesdays, 30 minutes of speech and language at one o'clock, why can't you jump on Zoom and do that same thing at one o'clock? The only difference is you're not at school, but the time allotment is the same and available. And so why haven't you provided that service that the IEP says the student has to obtain? And a lot of the time it was doing the headlights look and they wouldn't respond to me. And again, there was no clear cohesion, no clear expectation guidelines where people are now, it's, you know, there, there is an ownership when there are very clear expectations and there are repercussions for the failure to execute on those expectations, which I'm hoping 
that accountability will be there moving forward. I think to some extent, definitely higher than last semester, it will be there. But last semester was just sort of um, a free for all. And some got good service and attention. A lot did not. And so there's no question that compensatory education will be happening and regression is absolutely, sadly, um, pervasive. I have no doubt. Well, we definitely saw uh, variations in what people were getting services as much as people were being told that they didn't even do certain, like speech we uh, or OT, that they didn't even provide those services, which to be honest, via Zoom, those services were Perfectly. Like those, I can see the resources, which were also not provided. I get where that would maybe not be as conducive on a Zoom. I get that. But there's certain services that work um, seamless. And, and the variation. Speech and language is one of them. Yeah, we found that that really worked for Liam in our case. Um, you, because we were one of those people who were told when it came to a certain service, uh, well, you know, you just they'll give you some handouts and you can implement the service yourself, <laughs> which, um, so it, and, and that's very, that's very frustrating. Um, but to stay, I want to say, we want to stay on, on task here so it, it can apply as m- many people can get information, um, that, that help them as far as the variation on the services that they've received from, from different people. I feel like it's the parents that really pushed and asked for services. What do you recommend? Because again, we're going from a parent, it's the pandemic. They already have the responsibilities of, you, you know, um, supporting their child on a daily basis. They say, hey, these are the services in my IEP. They get a letter back saying those services we don't do anymore because it's the pandemic or we can't provide them or we we just have to do, you know, whatever they say they have to do. And then they come back and say, you know, no, that's inappropriate. What what do they do? Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no easy answer in order to have a quick, you know, um, result in terms of getting what you need. Because in those situations, the best scenario actually for purposes of ultimately obtaining compensatory education, but you know, it's, I'm trying to find ways for families to get what they need right now, you know, to get, to maximize their services now during this extremely difficult time where many children are going to absolutely regress and many aren't going to get those skills back. So it's crucial to try and, you know, really secure those services right now and what's the best way to do that so the best way to do that is like i said calling an iep meeting and having that conversation and saying i need more this isn't working and putting an expectation on them and and put it all in writing always put it in writing so if no one's calling you put it in an email i would like you to send me a schedule you know per my child's iep he receives speech and language services twice weekly he receives ot 30 minutes weekly he receives, you know, DIS counseling, 30 minutes weekly, whatever it may be. Please provide me with a schedule as to I, when I can expect his service providers to reach out to me during the week. Let's coordinate on timing for schedules so these services can be delivered to my child as expected and as mandated by his IEP. I am not waiving these services. It is your responsibility to provide them. So make that very clear. As a parent, you know that they have to provide and don't accept when they tell you we don't have to yes you do and the law says that you do and i am a diligent parent who has done their research 
And I know for a fact that you have this responsibility. The IEP is not to be reduced or altered or suspended or anything. And so please provide me with a schedule for my child's education according to his IEP. Make that as clear as day in an email. If they write you back and they say no, then double down and confirm it. Is it my understanding that you at this time are rejecting providing my child's services? And, you know, get lock them down, commit them to an answer, because that would be the best way to you then. Again, the only other avenue is file a due process complaint in pursuit of compensatory education. So you file a due process complaint between March and September, including ESY. My child was not provided these services. You owe me X amount of hours. That is irrefutable. They will have to provide compensatory education, especially when it wasn't provided. Even if the districts make some kind of an effort and they have some kind of a defense that they attempted to provide, but is the best they can do. The, the, the standard isn't the best they could do at all um, or that they did, you know, what they thought was reasonable within the pandemic, you know, constrictions. That's not the standard. The standard is was what you provided sufficient to provide my child an appropriate education? Not whether you provided all that you could and that's it. It's the, what my child received Did that offer him a meaningful benefit. That's the standard. And if that answer is clearly no, or if they didn't provide the services that the IEP clearly states that they have to provide, then you will be owed compensatory education. But I can't stress enough that the best way to get what your child needs right now is to approach them, to approach initially in a very sort of collaborative, I want to work with you to see how we can help my child. I, I'd like you to tell me how we're going to apply these services. And although they're discouraging these conversations in IEP meetings and they're saying the districts don't have to convene these meetings, they can talk to you informally and create a distance learning plan, your child doesn't have a learning plan. Your child's learning plan is an IEP. That is your child's learning plan. So that is the document you work off of. We're not going to alter this document that tells me what my child needs. We're going to talk about how to apply these services in light of new circumstances. We're not going to change them. We're going to talk about how to best deliver them alternatively. But I'm not giving up on any of them, not a minute of them. So you tell me how you're going to provide it. And if you're not going to provide it, please confirm that. And then you move on to your appellate process because that's really all you can do. But really try to work with your team and see if, you know, sometimes they'll tell you we're not going to provide you speech. We'll send you a package. So have your IEP meeting. Insist that the speech pathologist be present. My IEP says one hour a week. Why can't you provide me that one hour a week? Explain that to me, please. So, again, the goal is to collaborate and get them to say, okay, we will provide the service. But also... You're there is two-pronged. You're there to obtain the information that's going to show that they were violating your IEP and that you've got your cause to go to due process and get your compensation. And also you're out of pocket. If, you know, I'm telling families, if the districts are not providing you their services, period, for whatever reason, go get your own private services if you can afford to. And then later you can pursue their out-of-pocket costs because you tried it their way, they didn't, they ignored you, they didn't provide it, which forced you to go and get your own. It's the same argument with parents that distance learning just doesn't work and the programming that's being offered 
It's just futile. And some parents are opting to leave the district and go pursue private educational programs. It's the same as if the district offered you placement and you said, you know what, that's not appropriate. I'm going to go to Westmark or non-public school or Bridges and you give them notice and you leave and then you pursue out-of-pocket tuition. It's the same thing with the pandemic. It's analogous to that. If the distance learning isn't working, you've tried it, your child is miserably failing, you give them notice in writing, look, I've tried it your way, what you're providing isn't helpful, I am going to pursue alternative educational support outside of the school in the private sector, and I intend to pursue out-of-pocket reimbursement from you later because you failed my child. It's the same process. None of that changes. It looks different. You know, the modality is different, but the concept of compensation is the same. I want to encourage everybody who's listening to go back and really listen to the verbiage that you're using, the words, because a lot of times our requests can be, they'll be mute to them, but it's a certain word and, and they're very powerful. So I just want to um, really encourage people to go back and listen to how it's said. And, and I also like that you said, at, when we start off, let's go in there as a team. Let's go in there remembering that this IEP is for our child and how can we work together. But then you'll also be armed with the words and the verbiage and the actual services that are out there if you educate yourself. Can we talk timelines, Georgiana? Because those haven't changed, correct? Same thing, simple. Timelines all apply. Those have not been relaxed, they've not been suspended. And I would argue that even if the CDE or OSEP or the U.S. Department of Education were to suggest that those be relaxed, I would argue you can't do that. The only way to change those those uh, mandates is via legislation by Congress. And trust me, they try to do it and they still may try to. Um, but right now, IDEA is what applies. IDEA is the legal Bible here and you cannot change a single word of it unilaterally. And so those timelines still apply, especially now that we're finding with a lot of guidance from telehealth professionals, these assessments can't be conducted via telehealth. Absolutely. And so districts just have to shift the way they do things. They don't just pause on doing them. They have to find alternative ways to comply with those timelines. It won't be the same way, but you've got to just shift and think of different ways to provide those assessments and identify the kids that need the help and identify what additional supports are required via these assessments via telehealth. And it absolutely is feasible and possible. And it's been, it's been done, you know, it's, it's being done. Um, I've had IEE, I had one particular IEE assessor who the district granted the IEE before the pandemic. And um, the assessor went ahead and conducted the entire assessment via telehealth and via parent interview and via parent um, questionnaire, the, the, um, parent and the teachers um, were all able to do um, all of their questionnaires for the student and the IE assessor was able to assess the student via um, technology virtually and was able to provide all of the standardized testing and all the psychological testing and all the cognitive testing and she had a very clear picture of the student and a very clear profile in order to make a recommendation for what the student needed moving forward and I called the IEP meeting and we went to the meeting and unfortunately the IE assessor jumped on before I did and spoke informally to the administrator who told her, we're going to dismiss you now because your assessment is deemed incomplete since you weren't able to observe the students. So we're not going to take your recommendations. That is 100% illegal in my book because if you've got a professional saying, I did my due diligence and in my professional opinion, I am able to make a recommendation based on the assessments that I did and I don't need to observe the student in the school environment in order to make that determination and recommendation, 
that assessment is valid and should be heard. And again, there needs to be just like they're asking for flexibilities. The way that things are done on behalf of the student by parents and assessors, those have to be flexible too, as long as they're reasonable. And as long as we can still get, you know, substantive, meaningful information that we're able to create a profile for the student in terms of what's the best learning profile for the student and what's the best, you know, the most appropriate placement and services, absolutely they should allow that. And that was enough information to make a recommendation, except the parent was denied that right, which is a violation. And now we're proceeding to due process and we're going to have to put it in front of a judge perhaps. But there are ways to move forward. Absolutely. There's a difference between finding the way and just refusing to do it and, and you know, wanting to just put a pause on things unreasonably because the, the, the ability is there. They just have to have the desire to implement it. And absolutely, the tools are there to do it. Do you, so because parents are, you know, parents are exhausted. Do you have any advice to parents that can alleviate some of the frustration and streamline the process like they're going, you know, you go into an IEP. Do you have any advice? Because I, I, you, you said take notes and keep a log, go in there to work as a team. But anything else, they're sitting in the IEP and they're starting to feel that feeling in the pit of their stomach that this is not going where they want it to go or they're being bullied or. I wish I had some magical words, you know, as you know, I've been doing this for a long time and um it's a frustrating process, period. Um, it's compounded tenfold with this closure. And so IEP meetings in general by nature during, you know, typical times are frustrating and hard. Um, they're more frustrating and hard now. Um, and so there really isn't any magical sort of words you can use. All you can hope is that in appealing in, to these people and, and hoping, you know, presenting it in a way where you're just sort of tugging at heartstrings almost. Like, look, this is my child. This isn't working. I'm here to work with you collaboratively. I'm here to hear your input. How can we make this so that my child can be more successful? How can we shift things, alter things? How can we think outside the box with the delivery of services. And ultimately, unfortunately, oftentimes you feel like you can give the, you know, sort of closing argument of your life and it will fall on deaf ears and you will still get that generic boilerplate response. And they will ultimately tell you, well, if you disagree with us, you can go ahead and, you know, pursue your rights to appeal, blah, blah, blah. And when you hear that, you just know, check, please, you're done. And that's why I say that the best strategy for parents is to be prepared and to obtain all the information that you can to pursue that which isn't being provided now. And that's not what you want to hear because you want to go in there and get what your child needs now. Chances are that's not going to happen. And so you need to empower yourself with the information that you need to pursue it on your own later on an appellate process. You know, that's the bottom line is dot your I's, cross your T's, record your IEP meeting, give them 24-hour notice prior to the meeting in writing and you can record your meetings on zoom as well on your audio recorder and gather as much information as you can to make your case because ultimately you're gonna have to fight for services and you, you're gonna have to create your case at that IEP meeting and gather all of your evidence in essence at that meeting and keep a very clear record of what's being provided week by week 
all of the services, what's being provided by whom at what time. Keep a clear log so later you can go back and compare your logs to there because they're supposed to be logging in all of their times. And ultimately, you can request um, records and ask that you be provided their login times and you can compare that to what records you've kept. And you might see an inconsistency there, which means they're lying. So again, the best advice I can give you is try to collaborate and come together. But at the same time, be very vigilant of what's not being done and keep a very clear record, track everything so you can then pursue what you need to later. Because likely that's where it's going to end up. And I'm almost certain every kid's going to be owed compensatory education. And I don't know that that's going to be offered at the IEP meetings. There's a chance you're going to have to go to due process to pursue all of that. One more thing. I, I don't know if we really spoke on placement, if they tried to change your placement in one of these Zooms. Absolutely not. Um, again, remember that the same rules apply. Just as if you were at an IEP meeting during regular um, non-closure and they said to you, we think your child isn't being successful in the regular education classroom, we're going to recommend a special day class, an SLD setting for your kid. You can request that all day long. You can reject it and you can say, you know, I respectfully disagree. I am going to keep my child where my child is and I'm going to invoke stay put, which means they can recommend changes all they want to. But once the parent invokes stay put, which means you reject their change, they have to go to a due process hearing and prove to a judge that the recommendations that they are making are appropriate. So your child stays put. You don't have to do a thing. You don't have to file due process. You don't have to do anything because nobody can force you out of your services and placement that you have currently. It's their duty to file and go pursue that change on their own. So you sit tight and you keep what you have and 100% it is illegal for them to change a thing. You just make sure you note in your IEP signature page, I disagree with the recommendation of X. I choose to keep my child in current level of placement and services. Just note that very clearly in the IEP signature page. Make sure you have a copy of that and they can't do a thing. Nor should parents, I know that I, I know that parents have also been asked to sign certain waivers where they're temporarily suspending the IEP or they're okay with whatever new services are being offered. Absolutely not. Do not agree to anything. Sometimes it's hard for parents to, to look at these teachers and administrators in the face and disagree with them. Um, and you don't have to say to them, you're doing a crappy job. I'm rejecting what you're giving me. You can easily say, listen, I, I really appreciate your efforts. I know you're doing your best. Um, but unfortunately, it's not working for my kid, and I'm not going to make any changes right now knowing that what we have right now isn't working, and leave it at that. Well, you know, it's going to take a lot of out-of-the-box thinking. It, just like you mentioned, uh, the IEs, uh, some making assessments that were out-of-the-box, and that can be successful sometimes. Hopefully, the private sector will catch on to that and do that too, but parents are going to have to think different ways, and if they need someone next to them, an advocate or an attorney, that may be a way to go. And I hope all this information that you've given really helps people. Um, definitely, if people want to get in touch with you, they can go to specialkidsattorneys.com. I'm going to put all the links down there. You know, let me add to that. And again, I told you guys this last time, I feel it feels weird saying this because I get criticism. Oh, you're just trying to promote yourself. I'm not. Let me put out there. I am busy. I do not need to seek any business. But I've come to the point after having done this for so many years, and I had this conversation earlier today with someone else, another attorney. If parents want to maximize what their child's education should be, I truly believe, meaning special ed parents, the only way to do that in this climate is with an attorney. And I'm not saying that for people to come call me at my office. 
I'm just saying that that is what they respond to. And it's sad. It's unfair. Parents shouldn't have to go pay legal fees to get their child's IEP implemented. And sometimes as simple as implementation isn't happening. Parents aren't asking for anything extra. Right now, parents aren't asking for anything extra. They're just saying, please provide in some way what the IEP is saying you have to provide. And they're not doing that. Parents aren't even asking for more. They're just saying, you're not even providing the services the IEP says you have to provide. You're not making an attempt to provide those services. And so my clients would call me and I would call the IEP meeting and boom, the services are applied. That's just the reality. That's just life. And it's sad and it's unfortunate. But if you and, and you know, my office personally, I'm I'm working hard to work with families and give them financial breaks and I'm doing pro bono where I can. I'm doing my best to really help families because I know everyone is impacted financially right now. So, you know, hiring an attorney isn't typically easy. It's much more difficult now. So a lot of us are out there and we'll work with you um, and we'll, we'll figure out a way. But if you keep banging your head against the wall, yes, you can pursue all of these things later. But even when you pursue due process on your own, you're still not going to maximize your outcome. Um, if you can go seek an attorney to help you, I would say do that. Um, because honestly, that's, that's usually the best way to get the outcome that you need. That's just me speaking as real as I can get. And we'll say our personal experiences, I believe that we sat in one IEP without an attorney. And in that IEP, we were pummeled. And we sat there because we thought, there's nothing else they can do because of what had happened in the past. And we sat there and we were pummeled. Because you don't know everything. They do. They know what you don't know. And they're going to take advantage of that. They can't do that with an attorney that says, that's not true. Here's what's expected of you. They've got no response to that and they've got to do it. And you have no reason to have that information. Why would you? They take advantage of the fact that you don't have that information. And so they always have an upper hand. Well, you know, I, when I said I'll put your information uh, in the show notes, I know you're really busy, but we've always known that this is, you know, this is your job, but this is more than just your job. You are an advocate, a personal, it, it hits you personally. You are, like many of us, really trying to change things for long term. And that's why I think we always go to you uh, for advice. I always say it's not just my job, it's my mission. This was what I was born to do. And, you know, my child, as you know, he is what led me down this path and it's infuriating to me to know that my child um, has everything he needs. You know, I've maximized, I'm very happy with his team, but it shouldn't be because I'm a lawyer that I get that. You know what I mean? Every family who has those needs should get what I have for my son. I haven't asked for an iota more than what I know he legally is entitled to or an iota less. But that standard isn't applied to all kids, depending on who the parent is and who their attorney might be. That's sadly how the cookie crumbles in life, really, with everything. But unfortunately, that is the reality of the situation. And I do put my whole heart into this and I don't let them get away with it. I just I, I will call them out on it because I know better and they should know better and families shouldn't be treated inequitably because one has a lawyer and one doesn't. That student should be treated equally and the services that that child requires should be provided despite of representation. But sadly, that's not how it works. Like again, everything in life. 
You know, and Georgiana, I, I do want to talk on the fact that when people like try to discourage you to say that you're just trying to get work, you shouldn't have to be there. Like, I, I feel like the people who say to try to discourage somebody from getting a lawyer, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be too aggressive. You don't want to rub someone the wrong way. It's not about rubbing someone the wrong way. It's about uh, rights that that should be implemented and 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 they shouldn't have to but thank goodness you're there and you can and and other lawyers are there to sit by the side because honestly when we were pummeled it was probably the one area we hadn't educated ourselves on and they knew they knew what they were doing was absolutely wrong and we didn't and if there would have been someone by our side that would have just stopped them in their tracks and and so if a parent is coming from that place of this is my experience and this is so frustrating and I'm so exhausted and it's taking such a toll on your personal life, which it does. I mean, there's no way that it doesn't. It tears families apart. Marriages end over stuff like this. Call somebody, reach out to a lawyer, reach out to an advocate, have them at your side because I promise you the difference in experience is, is night and day and it shouldn't be, but it is. And until it isn't, then you have someone in your corner you know, I always say I'm a product of their blatant failures. I wouldn't have a job if you did yours. It's that simple. If you did by these children, if you did right by these children and parents didn't need to fight, we wouldn't be in this situation. But there are so many factors at play as to why the system, you know, a lot of the time doesn't work or there's you end up at these at these impasses at these IEPs and they become so contentious and you know not the least of which is budget and money and and you know not having the ability to provide what every kid needs not because not necessarily they don't want to but they don't have the resources to and so they've got to be able to stretch these resources thin and that sometimes leads to misrepresentation of what your child requires because they know they can't give it to you even though they should but you know, due to practical reasons or budgets or what have you, marching orders, they can't provide your child what they need. So they're going to stretch the truth. That's a nice way of saying lie and misrepresent you as to what's appropriate. And they know that they can't do that with a lawyer in the room. That's that's just reality. And just uh, we're in California, but as far as other people who live in other states, now there's different things Things are different in different states. Uh, the, you know, the IDEA applies. It's a federal statute which applies to every single state. So there's nuances from state to state, but generally it's the same system and the same rights. Well, for those uh, parents that that maybe haven't hired a, an attorney in the past or are still skeptical about maybe an advocate, or I remember some of the things we hear or some of the things we thought was, I don't know if I want to bust that door down or I want to be so aggressive, but honestly having someone on our side has, because we, we rub people wrong all the time, you know, at school. Listen, it sends a message of don't mess with me. Like from the get go, I'm going to fight to the death for my kid. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. And you can think whatever you want to think, but I'm here not for me. I'm here for my kid and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get there. And parents get intimidated. They get scared. They're going to retaliate against me. I would tell you, I'm here to tell you the opposite. The, the complete opposite is true. I don't see that to be the, the fallout from getting a lawyer or advocating for your kid. I see them chopped to it. That's just reality. Yes, us too. We, we feel the same way and it relieves the parent of a lot of stress. 
it, it takes away from the emotion that you bring in. I mean, you're still, you still have emotion because it's your child you're fighting for, but the, the fear and the frustration is, it just dwindles a little bit when you have somebody next to you that's gonna fight the fight and kick down the door. And it's, it's all about law. It's not, there's no, it's not emotion. It's not thought. It's not opinion. It's not a favor. And that's what I always say. You know, I'm like, I'm not asking you people for a favor. I am asking you to implement the law. I didn't make it up. It's right here in black and white. This is what this child needs. And you've got no way out. We're not asking this family isn't asking you for a gift. They're asking you for what they are legally entitled to. And that's the way you have to approach it sometimes. You know, there's some lawyers that will go to an IEP meeting and kind of just sit through the whole thing and hear it out and then go to due process. I'm not that lawyer. I really, truly believe in, in, in sometimes it's taking gloves off and things get a little down and dirty and, and it gets contentious. But um, I really do believe in, in, in pushing at the IEP for what the kid needs and really advocating at that level and said, okay, fine, we'll go to due process. And obviously when you go to due process, a law, that's realistically speaking, the place where lawyers can make more money. I don't do that. I truly believe in when you're at the IEP, let's do everything we can to get what we need right now, because this is what the child needs now, not three, four, six months down the line. Um, and obviously sometimes you get to the impasse or you get to the point where, you know, you've, you've hit a wall and, and you can't agree and sure we'll go to due process, but Oftentimes, we are able to get that one to one aid at the IEP meeting. We are able to get the extra services by pushing for it and speaking up as to why it's appropriate. And oftentimes, when you keep talking, as you guys have seen in some meetings, you convince people that at the beginning are saying no. By the end of the meeting, they're like, okay, fine, let's let's try it that way. But you've got to push for that. You've got to be vocal enough to push for it and not just walk away when they say no. And if parents can remember, those laws are there because people fought really hard for that. And it's your right. We really thank you, Georgiana, for your time and your information. It's been really wonderful talking to you again, and we look forward to talking to you uh, in the future. Buckle up, because it's about to get a little bumpy. Let's see what happens when the year starts. We'll regroup again and come back with some um, observations of how it's going once the year starts and we see what's being implemented. Thank you. Thanks, Georgiana. Call back anytime. I'll talk to you soon. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. From the dawn.